Hello and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, I had a very illuminating conversation over the weekend with an NBA strength coach and his basic argument was this, and I think it really nicely sums up a lot of the developments that we're going to talk about here from the opening couple weeks of the playoffs. His argument was this. The NBA superstars that are out there right now vying to kind of fill that LeBron James void, uh, you know, who can be the best player in the game, who can go win that title, are all basically workaholic maniacs. They all are committed to their workout routines, you know, 12 months a year. Uh, They're all deep into the skill development, you know, craziness where they're trying to dribble tennis balls blindfolded and juggle things, you know, while they're standing on one leg. They're all maxing themselves out. Uh, on sort of the traditional or the basic methods uh, for improvement, right? What he's saying Mm -hmm. is there is a blind spot for some of these guys when it comes to the emotional intelligence development aspect of it, when it comes to trying to get yourself prepared to be composed in a high-pressure situation, to keep your head through you know, tough times if your team's down 15 in a playoff game, if you're in foul trouble or whatever it might be, and that there's some guys who have really realize the importance of that here over the last couple of years and maybe some guys who haven't fully internalized it or even if they have understood it's important haven't worked hard enough to improve uh, you know that aspect of their game and I think uh-huh. you're seeing that play out in a lot of different situations I mean we talked about Damian Lillard versus Russell Westbrook so we, we understand how that one went there's no question that kind of stone-faced Lillard was more composed but if you look at that Denver uh, versus San Antonio game seven I mean, Greg Popovich is your coach. You're LaMarcus Aldridge. You're an all-star player. You've been playing basketball for 85% of your life, and you forget in the high-pressure moment to commit a foul that everybody in the building realizes uh, you need to commit a foul as the the clock is winding down. That's an example of somebody losing their composure. I mean, you can check out uh, or you can, you know, overcompensate like a Westbrook or you can sort of, you know, lose your mind in the moment uh, like a LaMarcus Aldridge. And I think this really brings us to Rockets Warriors because there is no question both teams were trying as hard as they could to work the referees, right? To set the tone for the series, to get away with the little things on the margins. But I also thought there was no question as to which team did a better job keeping its composure. You look at Chris Paul ejected in the closing seconds. You look at James Harden and Mike D'Antoni, they're immediately hitting that post-game podium going kind of above and beyond to try to set a narrative about how they're being jobbed by the officials. On the other side, you have a guy in Steph Curry who has dealt with the most frustrating Ted days or one of the most frustrating Ted days uh, stretches of his career. Foul trouble, game in, game out. He's not making an impact on the games. He easily could have taken himself out mentally in that moment. Instead, he checks back into the game, basically a minute left. He goes to his pet, you know, step back, going right, three-point shot off the dribble, drains the three-pointer right over the top of Nene to basically seal that win. He pulled himself through as a composed player in that moment. That's why they won. And I think, frankly, that's the story of these playoffs. You go across any of these series, even Milwaukee-Boston, where Milwaukee looked a little bit shell-shocked, I think the differentiating factor in a lot of them has been the composure of the star players and the guys understanding that that emotional intelligence aspect to their game is critical when... Everything else between a lot of these teams is pretty balanced. Um, that's interesting. I think I agree with most of what you said there. And 
it's you could say that almost every playoff run where the the winning teams are generally the more composed teams the only thing i wonder about is whether we go back and retroactively ascribe mental toughness to guys who end up winning in the end um because well, I think a well, lot of times... Yeah, I, th- I thought about that too. But like sometimes it's just pure talent, right? Like sometimes it's not that close. Like, you know, Gold State, like they could, you know, trick off a lot of stuff uh, in 2017 and still go 16-1 and one in the postseason, right? Like Exactly. That's kind of what I'm thinking but, about is but, like, you know, yeah, they have so, a lot of tactical advantages as, as well. Right. And I guess my point is that, you know, you've tried to hype up this second round as being incredible across the board. And I think, you know, that there's a lot of very intriguing matchups, right? Um, yeah. But I think it is closer this year than it's been in other years, in part because Golden State's sort of been a little bit up and down. And I think it's more pronounced this year because the playing field is a little bit more level, because most of these teams aren't just afraid of LeBron and kind of checking themselves out of series before they even get started. Yes, I'm looking mm-hmm. at you, Toronto Raptors and Termites. And so this is a situation where uh, it's like, it's kind of there for the taking, right? And I think that the there's so many star players who have cases now as top five guys or top 10 guys who are all competing simultaneously, that this winds up being one of the biggest differentiating factors this year. And I do think it's a bigger deal this year than it has been in years past. Yeah. Um, well, I, I certainly agree. I agree with that read on the Rockets. I thought that watching them on Sunday, they actually played a very, very solid game. But the entire time, it seemed like Harden and to a lesser extent, Chris Paul were kind of preoccupied with what the officials were calling or not calling. And um, it was strange to watch. It was a little depressing to watch because these are like great players that were step for step with the best team in basketball. And so to double back and, and yap at the refs on basically every possession was just kind of a bummer to watch as a basketball fan. But um, that's where we're going to start, Ben. You have an hour before you have a hard out and a flight back to Los Angeles. I'm in Toronto. I'm in a conference room in a Toronto Courtyard Marriott. And we are going to hit, number one, Rockets Warriors. Number two, my Boston Celtics versus the Milwaukee Bucks. Number three, we will touch on Kawhi and the Raptors at the end, despite the fact that that game two is going to be played about two hours after we finish recording here. Um, And we're going to keep it tight, keep it to those three topics today, and then we'll double back with a bigger mailbag at the end of the week. But I want to start with this from Darren, who says... Bill Belichick tells his team that when it comes to officiating, it's their job to adjust and quote-unquote do business as business is being done. And um, first of all, I, I hope that that is the first and last time Bill Belichick will ever be quoted on this podcast. I apologize. It's even worse than my Celtics homerism. But uh, I do think that's a good point. And The question comment continues by saying the officials were clearly not calling the landing area shooting fouls in that Warriors Rockets game. They were consistent the entire time. Harden, Curry, Paul, KD, none of them ever got that call. The Rockets needed to adjust. It was inexplicable that with time running out down three, Harden was focused on contorting his body to draw a cheap foul that had no chance of being called when he just needed to make the shot. Was this stubbornness or is the endless foul seeking so ingrained in the Rockets DNA that they just can't adjust? What do you think, Ben? Um, well, there's a lot going on there. I mean, think I think first of all, they took their eye off the ball in that game. They did they did not 
focus on the fact that it was a close game to me in the closing stretches. Like they got so caught up in um, their complaints and the idea that they were being sort of aggrieved and that, oh, they told us at halftime they're costing us all these foul shots, that that became their focus of basically everything they were doing, sort of like the emailer said. I don't know if on that last shot specifically he was only going to try to get the foul. I do think it was still a pretty reasonable shot attempt. I mean, it wasn't as bad as like the one that CP made where he like threw his hip out sideways to get the call <laughs> uh, or a few yeah. of the other ones where you know he does go out of his way to seek it. Uh, but I think that in general, persecution complexes don't win championships. It's okay to have a me against the world vibe to your team. Basically, every team tries to do that. But if you really think you're getting jobbed deep down, you truly believe that and you're sitting there counting every single slight against you rather than focusing on just playing basketball, uh, you will take yourself out and you will not be an excellent team, uh, which the Golden State Warriors clearly are. So to me, I thought Houston was you know, really its own worst enemies. I mean, I understand there was absolutely situations there where calls that should have been made were not, but not every single right. one of those video clips that people are reviewing online today showed a clear foul to me. There was a couple that were worse than others. None of them to me were as nearly as bad as the uh, Zaza foul that Harden brought up, you know, from 2017. And so to be fixated on this one particular issue, I think, Part of it is that they're trying to lay the groundwork for future games so that they can get those mm -hmm. calls because they feel like that's an important part of their strategy. So I do respect them on that end. But when you have uh, the report coming out from Sam Amick about, oh, that they've been charting all of this, and they've got all these reports, it almost turns this thing into a conspiracy, right? And that's not healthy for exactly. your players. It's not healthy for your coach. And I mean, the one guy who we've always questioned is Chris Paul, right? I mean, going back to the Oklahoma City meltdown, I think you said it yourself, he was wound a little bit too tight for your liking, right? Exactly. Yep. And who, mm -hmm. and who was the first person to crack in, in game one when the pressure was all the way up and we just talked about the importance of composure? Who was the first person to really explode? It was Chris Paul, and there's no other way to look at it. I mentioned uh, uh, Curry's strong mental toughness you know, in that closing shot. Durant was really steady too, man. I mean, you know, I think he had nine points in the final five minutes. He did have that one costly turnover, you know, right near the end. But his ability to get to the shot that he wanted and to take them or to get to the foul line by, you know, putting his head down and driving hard and earning the fouls stood in stark contrast to what kind of Houston was doing for a lot of that game. And again, that's why I go back to the Rockets should not be looking at the referees as their worst enemies. I think they should be looking in the mirror. Okay, so let me ask you. Were the Houston Rockets playing with a purpose on Sunday afternoon in Oakland? Uh, no, they were distracted. I mean, they got into their own heads. <laughs> wow, there no, we go. No, I there mean, look. There we go. Playing with a purpose requires knowing everybody's strengths and weaknesses, right? And much like that Belichick quote, you have to read the officials too. And I'm still yeah. waiting after all of these years of their lobbying for the referees to stop a game in the middle of the game and be like, you know what? We screwed up. We're just going to give you 15 straight foul calls here. Uh, you're right. <laughs> yeah. It's never going totally. to happen. It never will happen. And I actually go back to Golden State. I mean, this is not just a Houston problem, by the way. Remember Golden State antagonized the referees in that Minnesota game? Curry was pointing at the refs. They all called him out by name afterwards. And we, I, I remember that we made a big deal about that at the time. We said, look, this is not how you should treat these guys. It's unbecoming of a team as good as you are to mm -hmm. try to embarrass a referee that could come back to bite you. And I know the Warriors have felt that way here over the last month, that they're not getting a fair shake from the officials. Uh, and so 
Golden State can get away with it because they've shown the ability a lot of time to just flip the switch back the other way and say, all right, we just need to take care of business here. And that's what they did in the last couple minutes of that game. Houston has not necessarily shown the ability to flip that switch back the other way. And I just worry it's going to consume them a little bit. And that's why that you can't say they're playing with a purpose. You just can't because uh, they're playing with a chip on, on their shoulder that's become so big. It's like weighing them down and obscuring their vision. Yeah. No, you know what, man? I really appreciate you coming on and saying that because I was worried that I was going to be the only one side-eyeing some of their behavior, both during the game and after the game. And I was going to come off as like King Rockets hater on this podcast, which I've been called that online a couple times over the last, not, not a couple times. A lot of people were in my mention Sunday afternoon being like, you're supposed to be an objective journalist. And I think objectively speaking for me I did not like the way the Rockets played that game on Sunday I did not like the way they came out afterward and doubled down and started throwing out these conspiracy theories Daryl Morey compared it to the 2006 finals you know Mike D'Antoni said the refs personally apologized to him James Harden compared himself to Kawhi Leonard and let me tell you something when you go back and watch the Kawhi Zaza play and compare it to the plays that people are, are sending around online with James Harden in that game. Like, it's night and day. Kawhi was literally fading away, and Zaza, Zaza slides underneath him and injures his ankle. James is, like, fl- floating two feet, three feet forward, kicking his legs out, initiating contact. And that's fine if that's the way he wants to play. But when you live in the gray area, you kind of assume the risk of no calls along the way. And a lot of these situations are 50-50 calls. They put the refs in a tough position. Defenses don't necessarily have as much room to operate, and they have to have some space to be able to contest a shot. And it's just a really tough deal for everybody. And, it's, and the whole league is adjusting to what, the way this is going to be called going forward. And you're not going to get every call. And I just thought it was really kind of disingenuous to pretend that they were being victimized, number one. And number two, watching them play and follow every possession with whining to the refs, and and not only whining to the refs, actually, because one of the things that bugs me about Harden is, and we've been over this, I wish he had more diversity in his offense. The Warriors were playing really good defense on him on the perimeter, trying to take away those threes, and rather than kind of get things going in the mid-range or whatever— He stuck out there on that three-point line, and his solution to not shooting well was to initiate even more contact and make these shots even harder than they were initially, and um, it bit him in the ass, and that's the way it goes sometimes, and like Harden says, you got to live with the results, and so I just was really kind of rubbed the wrong way by the entire display, and more than anything else, I feel bad for Harden because I think he is so talented that it will be a bummer if this is the way his career plays out. He has the lowest shooting percentage of his career at this postseason, and he just continues to struggle in all the same ways that we've seen him struggle over the years. And I don't want him, I don't want this to be the end of his story. I mean, you and I go back and forth all the time giving each other crap, but like ultimately we want great players to succeed, and, um, and it's a bummer 
that he keeps making all the same mistakes. And I think if Houston thinks that this is about officiating and that's where Harden has been undone in the playoffs over the last couple seasons, like they're flat out wrong and it's kind of a waste of energy and, and, and a, a bad use of resources. So that was my reaction on, on game one. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of that emotional intelligence point I'm talking about. It's like at some point you have to adjust. Uh, at some point you have to say, all right, like, which calls am I getting? Which calls am I just not getting? And then, you know, how do I move forward? How can I be as flexible as possible on the move, on the run as the game is unfolding to, you know, get it done? I think it's got to be just incredibly frustrating for him how well Golden State plays him defensively. I mean, he's he's yeah. had struggles against them three of the past four years. Now it's going to become, you know, four of the last five years where they play him really well. Golden State played LeBron really, really, really well defensively year after year after year. And he did adjust, you know, a lot of different things. I mean, you look at how Cleveland played early in that tenure versus how they played towards the end of it. I mean, they really changed up their styles basically multiple times trying to find a way for LeBron to kind of, you know, get free and, you know, find ways to have success. Uh, we haven't seen the same radical changes from Houston other than kind of going more to this isolation stuff in recent years. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure that that approach is really going to work against Golden State. And so I think a lot of this is coming from uh, the feeling of this is such a monumental uh, opponent that they've been so obsessed, obsessed with for so long that they're in their own heads about it. You know, I, I really do think it's become kind of a persecution complex where Golden State is big brother. Golden State is those bad boy Pistons that used to, you know, mug Michael Jordan. It's a team that you can't get right. over the hump against. And they're, I mean, they're basically saying like, ref, we need a boost. Like this hump is too high for us. Can you like boost us up? Can we like jump on your shoulders? That's not a good way to think. And it's frustrating because I know the shooting numbers weren't great in game one. He still had them right there, <laughs> you know, with a one possession mm -hmm. game. He still had a chance to tie the game in the closing seconds. And if they hadn't gotten the technical fouls at the end of the third quarter, that's potentially a game-winning three-point shot that he's taking in that moment, right? So there, There's uh, no question about that. He also, he did a great job generating wide-open looks for Eric Gordon, for Daniel House, for that entire offense all game long. My issue is like, okay, so the contested step back threes aren't falling and you talk about the Warriors defense like Clay definitely fouled him on two or three of those threes but Clay was also just awesome at staying right with him the entire game on the perimeter Iguodala did a great job as well Looney even did a good a good job on switches and like they the Warriors were super, super disciplined. And in that scenario, yeah, you do have to adapt. And so, like, the officiating for me turned into kind of a microcosm for the whole problem of James Harden in the playoffs. It's like, you know what, this is the way it's going to work here. And if you're not going to adapt, then you're going to fail. And he just isn't able to kind of rewire himself in some of these big moments. And, um, and it's hard to watch because, like, I went down there in the middle of the winter I really liked everyone I met in that Rockets organization, including Harden. I think like they take a lot of heat as being these like quant heavy geeks, but Daryl Morey is like a basketball lifer. Mike D'Antoni is a basketball lifer. PJ Tucker and Chris Paul are flat out grinders, and James Harden is a basketball genius. And like we should all kind of be rooting for these guys. And yet they make it so, so hard sometimes when you look out there and Chris Paul is like 
almost horizontal throwing his body into Draymond Green on a three, and it's like, come on, man. Like, it. I don't know. It's just it's hard for me to watch. Yeah, I mean, Dan Tony had a comment about the lines of like, I guess you just have to sit back, uh, sit back and take it from the officials, you know, during these games. And he was like, well, I'm a little too old for that. I go the other way. Your whole team is too old and experienced to be yapping as much as you yap, right? Just play. Seriously. It's okay. There, yeah. there are four Hall of Famers in the mix in Houston, whether it's D'Antoni, whether it's Chris Paul, whether it's James Harden. Like, I guess that's only three Hall of Famers. But still, like those, these are like really dignified basketball legends, and they should have a little bit more composure than they showed on Sunday. So I think, you know, after kind of burying them a little bit, I do want to underscore this idea that, they clearly came out in the post uh, post game after game one, trying to make the statement right, trying to stir uh-huh. everything up, trying to turn that into a talking point. And I think it wasn't the worst idea, right? Because yeah, they're going to take a lot of crap. I mean, all the talking heads are going to come after them and call them whining babies and say Harden's a choker, and you know, th- but they're always going to get that no matter what if they lose. I mean, do you think there is any possible way that by turning this into such a big deal? that it does force the NBA to take a look at this and maybe call the games a little bit different, you know, the rest of the series. I ask because the last time we saw something on this same level, it was uh-huh. LeBron and Kiki conspiring to win the 2016 NBA Finals for the Cleveland Cavaliers, <laughs> right? So yeah. is there a precedent here where it's like, if you really feel aggrieved, like deep down, you've supposedly got numbers to prove it, like, are, are you best served by shouting it from the rooftops and hoping that there's some sort of an incremental change here going forward? I guess I'm saying if, um, you, if you were Daryl Morey and you were in charge of your organization's response, are you tweeting, you know, conspiracy stuff to Mark Cuban? Are you saying, yeah, Mike, go out there, let him have it, you know, tell him what the refs told you? Are you saying, James, like, bring up Kawhi? Like, are you sort of, you know, doing this in a concerted way to try to position your franchise for the rest of the series? Perhaps, perhaps I would be, and um, that isn't to say that it's right. You know what I mean? And it, it, like, I wrote a column on Monday talking about how embarrassing this display was from Houston, uh, because really, it, the tone of some of the complaints is what bugged me and drove me a little bit crazy. Just because, like, you don't need to be invoking these grand conspiracies throughout NBA history and acting like this was some grievous injustice. That that really bugged me, and in part, it, I think it bugged me because of the way it sort of echoes the way we talk about a lot of things these days. And, um, you know, it suddenly it's like we turn into Infowars in the middle of the NBA playoffs. It's like, you know what, like, take it down a notch. I understand you didn't get the calls you wanted, but you live in the gray area. This is the way it goes sometimes. That being said... Uh, I understand that, you know, working the refs through the media is kind of a longstanding playoff tradition. So, you know, more power to you guys if if that's the way the Rockets want to play it. I do hope that the NBA comes down pretty hard because ultimately what I worry about is that when we talk about precedence, for instance, you know, if everybody who does this and, and behaves this way and makes these kind of like vague claims of conspiracy or adopts this persecution complex, if they're then rewarded for it, then suddenly the players and teams that aren't doing that are at a disadvantage. And um, this is, look, it's not just the Rockets. I came out five days ago and said that Draymond Green 
gets more leeway from the refs than any player I've ever seen. He's literally screaming in the face of officials after calls on almost every possession in almost yeah, every no. game. Like, Dude, it, I mean, this is not a slippery slope. This is an ice luge. You know what I mean? It's, it's like if, it's if bad, the NBA right? starts like, you know, uh, changing things to you know acquiesce to these teams that complain, it's going to get crazy. I mean, the, the volume and the intensity and, you know, like the, the frequency – of complaints will only go go up because you're basically telling people, hey, this is the path to uh, game the system. We're now open for business. Uh, you know, our referees are are able to be uh, manipulated in that way, and that would be bad. And I do think I agree with you. I hope that the NBA has a pretty firm response here. I understand, though. Also, we're in a little bit of a different age where the raw emotions get through unfiltered so much more mm-hmm. quickly than they did in the past. And I actually think your point on tone is a really good one because. It's like that Fizdale rant where he was going off like, take that for data. I mean, everyone loved him for that. Oh, he's standing up for his players, you know. Well, he was also just like screaming at the referees. You know, he had the same basic message. (laughs) Like, we're we're getting job. But he comes out of that looking like a hero because of the way that he said it uh, and because of sort of the context of his organization, right? And I think one of the problems that Houston has right now, and you've touched on this before too, there is a boy that cried wolf syndrome, right? I mean, they've gone mm-hmm. down this path repeatedly over and over again. They've kind of played the persecution card over and over again. And so when they bring it up again, and there may be some you know, validity to their complaints, nobody wants to hear it from them. Like really imagine if you're Kiki Vandaway, right? And you've got like 43 voicemails from the Rockets <laughs> on your cell phone <laughs> after that game. And, you know, three hours of tape that they want to send in of different camera angles of each inch that oh James Harden was slid under. Like what would be your response? I mean, the people in the league office are humans too. At some point, no, those guys dude. are going to be like, come on, bro. Like that's going to be like, you know, like at some point it's not like we're not going to do a 5,000 word email chain addressing every single one of your complaints. We're just going to reply like, <laughs> I, I hear you. I got you. You know, we're good. You know, something like that. That's, I don't Literally, know. That's where I'd be. Look, verbatim this morning, I was talking to somebody about the Sam Amick, uh, pro, not profile, this is the piece on the Rockets officiating controversy, which was great from Sam at The Athletic where he reported on kind of a years-long lobbying campaign that the Rockets have launched on behalf of Harden and the team and the calls that they don't think that they're getting in some of these Warriors matchups, which helps explain why yesterday produced such an outburst from everyone around that team. But also in there, there was that note where the Rockets were complaining that the NBA was assigning veteran officials to these Warriors games who were less prone to whistle Warriors defenders on some of these fouls guarding Harden. And that is such an audacious claim to make a complaint to issue where you're saying, look, you're assigning more experienced refs who are better at discerning what's a foul and what's not a foul and that's costing us a game. And my text in response to that was like, Daryl is trending dangerously close to, listen, man, we have to block your number territory from the league office. Because like, 
I just don't even know what you say to that. You know, like the NBA should not be sending out first and second year officials to referee the biggest games of the season with Houston and Golden State. I mean, literally, like, this is the biggest series of the playoffs. If we want to talk about implications for the whole league, implications for the future of the league, like, this is huge. I want experienced refs out there, and it's kind of telling that I guess the Rockets don't. Yeah, email to Kiki, subject, fresh meat, body. Hey, we, <laughs> we need some young guys we can manipulate and bully into calling our fouls. Please it's help insane. us out here. It's insane. Um, here, we should move on, though, because I do want to spend at least five minutes talking about the actual game. Because beyond the officiating bullshit, I do think that the Warriors are vulnerable. You know, I think like... I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Durant. Durant was unbelievable. And I thought that you were going to come on here defending the Rockets and we were going to have to argue for about 25 minutes and then Durant was going to be the guy who brings us back together because I am currently blown away by what he's able to do in some of these games. And watching him yesterday, that's another reason I hated the officiating stuff because it, it overshadowed how spectacular KD was. Um, having said that, though, Golden State is basically a six-man team right now. You have Curry, Klay Thompson, Iguodala, Draymond Green, Kevon Looney, and um, I'm forgetting the sixth. I don't know who. They they don't go very deep. I mean, they like because I'm not even really counting Sean Livingston as a good player that they can lean on in some of these games. And so it's a real skeleton crew beyond their superstars. And... Um, I don't know. I think that every one of these games is going to be really close just because the Warriors or sorry, the Rockets are are built to slow them down and um, and are going to be able to kind of like jam up their offense. And KD, as great as he is, can sometimes become a little bit of a crutch for Golden State where it takes them away from what they want to do and and who they are when they're at their most dangerous and um yeah for sure so Look, i don't know I mean, he definitely tightened the rotations there's no question about it he's definitely you know kerr has changed his starting lineup here in a couple of straight games right so he put livingston in the starting lineup against the clippers and then now changed his starting lineup again you know to open the series against houston i mean that's usually the sign of a team that's not like overwhelmingly overconfident I mean in the past Golden State would be like eh we'll just kind of start this lineup see how it goes and if we need to adjust we're going to adjust I think the it was very telling that they're like all right we're bringing it all into the starting lineup right off the bat in game one we can't mess around against Houston it's already serious you know you mentioned you know Durant and he's playing huge minutes and I'm I just worry if the toll of carrying Steph Curry for you know two straight series is going to catch up to him what do you think I mean that's no small burden (laughs) This is where you can't help but get in a little dig at me. Um, well, hey, look, look Steph- you know, big, big picture, though, you always like to talk about the big things. The biggest thing from this playoffs to me, we talk about who's the best player in basketball. You said, hey, I think Giannis is not only the best player and most dominant player during the regular season. I think he's just the best overall player. I don't think Uh that's true. I think the best overall player in basketball is Kevin Durant. I think he showed early in that Clippers series that he was the most complete player. He had all the different counters that you want from these guys, mid-range, post, passing, uh, drawing extra help, shooting over the top of defense, playing defense, anything that you wanted to see. Uh, from Kevin Durant. He showed that in game three, and then he just took it up you know, more notches in games five and six. And to me, he's been the singular 
best player in this playoffs by a pretty healthy margin. I think Kawhi Leonard actually has a strong case for number two uh, in terms of who's been the best uh, in this postseason. Um, but that is the biggest thing that I would take away uh, from this series. He's absolutely been a crutch because, frankly, they haven't had anybody else to turn to. Steph Curry's got four fouls before uh, he gets halfway through the first quarter, and it's so maddening. And I thought it was kind of incredible. Like, it's just big picture. In 10 years from now, if you went back and said, in the 2019 playoffs, after a hotly contested victory over their chief rival, the coach of the defending champions would refer to one of his MVP players as, you know, playing Jordan-esque, and he would refer to his other MVP player as a kid who wouldn't even listen to his mom's advice about not getting into foul trouble, people would say, you're crazy. Like, how is it even possible that Kerr (laughs) could show so much respect to Durant and in, like, the very next breath kind of get in these digs that, like, Steph is just some, like, little kid who can't control himself and has to be scolded by his mom. It speaks a lot to Steph Curry's... Yeah, it speaks a lot yeah. to Steph Curry's character that he just takes that. You know, a lot of guys would be like, what are you talking about, Curry? <laughs> like, get off my back. I was going to say, I, that only made me like Steph more because he clearly doesn't really give a shit about stuff like that. Uh, whereas, like, you could never say that about someone like KD. But it, to be clear for anybody who doesn't live on the NBA internet, that is a verbatim thing that Kerr said. He said... I'll ask, I asked Steph's mom to tell him to stop reaching in. He didn't listen. Maybe next time I will ask his dad instead. And um, That's more disrespectful <laughs> than the thing Chris Paul hates where people touch his head. I mean, that is yeah. such a disrespectful <laughs> thing to say. It really is. Imagine if I told uh, you that, you know, it's like, hey, Andrew, you know, I asked your mom for you to stop swearing on the podcast. You didn't listen to her. So I'm going to have to try to ask your dad well, next. Come on. I mean, that, that is <laughs> no, really no, no. disrespectful. Listen, listen. I think that I'm the Steph Curry of the podcast because I'm able to roll with all kind of paternal instincts uh, and paternalistic (laughs) behavior from you. So um, I will give myself credit, but here's the deal. And here's why I liked that game one, aside from all the officiating BS. I think that the Warriors are going to be really, really fun to watch right now because they are more vulnerable and there's room for them to lose not only this Rocket Series, but in the finals. And I don't necessarily care who wins this Warriors Rocket Series. Like, I think there are probably people out there who are like, oh, like you just can't wait for the Rockets to lose. I don't believe in the Rockets, but I would enjoy the Rockets winning this series because I think if they do that, then they advance to the Western Conference Finals and the West Finals are more interesting because that series will be close. And then whoever comes out of that series, I think is losing to whichever team comes out of the East. And so as a son of the Eastern Conference, I would love to bring the title back to the East Coast uh, or maybe in Milwaukee, maybe we could bring it up north to Toronto, whatever you want to do. But um, I love I you trying it. to cover your tracks here. Oh, yeah, we just want it somewhere in the Eastern <laughs> Conference. We don't, oh, man, we know you want it in Fanuli Hall or whatever it's oh, called. Get God. out of here. Fanuli, wow. <laughs> Faneuil Hall, good shout out. Um, Here's the deal, though. I It's going to be really fun to watch this Golden State team be tested because right now they need the absolute best version of Kevin Durant's game to survive some of these games. And that, that was true even against the Clippers, which is or kind of insane Or just Steph Curry to, to show about. up, though. I mean, that's the other oh, thing. They still just the need Steph. If, he, if they, he's present, they'll be okay. Yes, and at some point they're going to need Steph in addition to Durant, and it's going to be really fun to watch them kind of do their best to keep this team together and to keep everything rolling because 
structurally, there are more cracks in the foundation than I think most people realized or would have imagined when we talked about what this was going to be six months ago. Because, like, you just look up and down that roster. There's not a whole lot there. So I can't wait to see what happens. I can't wait to see what the Rockets come back with in Game 2. And with that, Ben, I think well, we should move on to the other series around the the playoffs here. We should. Just as one quick postscript, I think that the Warriors' rotation is in not quite as bad of a shape as you're suggesting, but against a high-level opponent like Houston that plays like a very you know strict style and doesn't really go that deep in their rotation it's forcing it to shrink right like i do think there's situations yeah. where in the western conference finals they could go back out and play they don't have to play these guys all like 38 39 40 minutes a night the starters they wouldn't even necessarily need to start iguodala in that western conference finals matchup i think they're basically treating this second round series like it's the nba finals like it's a matchup with lebron james and you know the pete cavaliers teams and i think yeah. it shows a, a lot of healthy respect from their side and it also shows a lot of doubt in some of the guys who they've been playing along the way, too. It's like, all right, you guys aren't really ready for this primetime. Totally. And that's the thing about game one is it did have that kind of like hyper tense feel of an NBA finals game where everything is kind of ugly. Every possession matters. And um, I... <laughs> I can't imagine that's going to continue for the rest of the series. I'm sure there will be a few blowouts mixed in there, but um, but it's cool to see that like at the beginning of May because it's just it's it's pretty crazy. Um, but with that, Ben, today's show is brought to us by Pro Flowers. Don't forget to thank the real pros this Mother's Day because where would you be without your mom? Pro Flowers is an easy way to let your mom, your spouse or any other mother in your life, know that you care. You can choose from a variety of bouquets and unique vases that suit every mom's style, and then you simply select the delivery date you want. Ben, Pro Flowers sent me a bouquet of flowers that were higher quality than the roses I typically purchase whenever I buy flowers. Um, So I'm a believer. Tell me a little bit more about Pro Flowers. Well, first of all, their ad copy really gets to the heart of it. Where would you be without your mom? I mean, that is a fundamental existential question we should all be thinking about (laughs) as Mother's Day approaches. Pro Flowers carefully packages your flowers and delivers them fresh from the farm with express delivery so they stay fresh. Right now, get one dozen assorted roses for $19.99. Double the roses and get a premium vase for just $9.99 more. Visit proflowers.com. Click the microphone in the upper right corner and enter our code, OPENFLOOR. That's proflowers.com. Click the microphone, code OPENFLOOR. Mother's Day is May 12th, so don't wait. Order like a pro and get this amazing rose deal to thank all the moms in your life. Proflowers.com, promo code OPENFLOOR. All right, and let's move to the Eastern Conference and my Boston Celtics, Ben. I'm going to start with one question from Mate, who says, Yeah, Adetokumbo embarrassed himself, but isn't it more Bud's fault? Where was the plan B for Milwaukee? Why couldn't he tell his team how to counter Boston's tactics? What do you think, Ben Golliver? Um, I don't. First of all, Giannis did not embarrass himself. Uh, and second I, I of all, agree with that. Uh, this whole counter thing, you know, it's like you're asking guys to react on the fly. I mean, 
the team was shell shocked out of the gate. Milwaukee was not ready to go. Uh, you know, quarter one, game one uh, of that series, and so it's like you're you're if you're the Bucks coaching staff, you're trying to sort through how much of it is like guys just being like, oh man, these aren't the Detroit Pistons anymore, uh, and how much of it is like, okay, you know, what's Giannis able to do and what he, what is he not able to do? The story mm-hmm. of the game to me twofold. Al Horford was the best player on the court pretty clearly to me both ways he was really really important he was able to find soft spots in Milwaukee's defense contribute offensively and defensively he turned it a masterpiece against Giannis he had a lot of help but he was the most important cog to what they're trying to do I think Brad Stevens has basically patented the Giannis rules you know they're not trying to like hammer Giannis like the Detroit Pistons used to in the late 1980s but they've constructed their entire defensive scheme around pinpointing what Giannis doesn't do great at this point of his career and exploiting it for maximum benefit. You see that with how they wall him out of the paint, how they contest everything he gets around the basket, how uh, they sort of encourage him uh, to take shots from the perimeter, but also how they delay their help when he's driving into the paint. So when he's going into his moves, and I think if there's one criticism of Giannis, uh, you know, going to the basket. Sometimes he's a little bit robotic. Sometimes he's a little bit deliberate. And I think uh-huh. the Celtics were using that against him, right? So as he's going into his moves, they're not diving immediately. They're sort of waiting until he gets into it, where he's in a position where he can't necessarily make that kickout pass. Then they're diving to help, and he's kind of stuck, you know, with bodies everywhere and no real clear passing lanes. And that just really had the 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 function of making him think and overthink and get a little bit frustrated and not exactly have a clear roadmap for how he was going to get to the basket. If Giannis can't get to the basket, Milwaukee can't win this series. It's as simple as that. And that's why they've won so many games this year, because he's consistently been able to do that. And yeah. uh, you got to give credit to Horford. Uh, Baines at times, uh, you know, Morris at times, and, you know, they're just team defense was on a string, as, as people like to say. They had five guys with both eyes on Giannis on basically every possession, and they did a, f- you know, phenomenal job of bottling him up. And, you know, from the adjustment side, uh, from, you know, Coach Bud, I mean, it's a fundamental crisis, right? Like everything re- relies on Giannis being able to set up the drive and kick stuff. If he can't yeah. do that, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned Baines. It's crazy to me how important Baines is to that Celtics team, but he really is like a, a legit factor in a lot of these matchups. He'll be a factor in this Bucks series when he. it looked like he rolled his ankle midway through the fourth quarter on Sunday, and it was like, oh, shit, so what does Boston do without Baines? Which is just a crazy question to be asking uh, about a potential title contender, but like that's been true all year, where he is one of their four or five most important players, in part because they have so much depth everywhere else. But um, so uh, beyond Aaron Baines, which is a weird place for me to start, I think we should emphasize uh, Giannis didn't embarrass himself. He struggled. He was dealing with a defense that was keyed on him the entire game, and he wasn't nearly as dominant as he's going to need to be for the Bucs to have a chance in this series. But I think an embarrassment would be not showing up, not being ready to play, and getting kind of blown off the floor. If anything... I saw that Celtics team yesterday, and it was a credit to how much respect they have for Giannis and how terrified they are of what he can do in this series. And um, and Boston has like the perfect personnel to bother him. Number one, you have Horford, and we'll get to him in a second. But like when they were 
pinning down on him and converging on him around the rim, the Celtics looked like the Lilliputians crowding the giant and just swatting away at, at every shot he took and everywhere he tried to go, except that the Celtics Lilliputians are all 6'8 and super long and athletic which is just a really tough place for Giannis to be, and that's a tough team for him to deal with. And then you look at Horford, and um, it's just crazy, man. Like, I I don't know. I I saw that Horford game, and if I were a Celtics fan, I would be mildly concerned just because this is the way my brain works. It's like, it's almost too good to be true. Like, he can't possibly be that dominant and that valuable for the rest of the series because... That's how good he was in game one, where he's just like hitting every open three, spreading the Bucks defense out, and then basically shutting Giannis down on the other end of the court. And Giannis, you're right, he's not the best player in the league. I, th- I sort of try to speak that into existence. I don't think I'm going to win any Giannis versus Durant arguments uh, this week, but I think he's clearly going to own the next 10 years of the NBA, and he's clearly one of the three or four most unstoppable players in the league right now. And so it's that all makes Horford's game that much more incredible. Like it's just I can't believe he's still able to do this. I I don't know if it's going to last for the entire series. I don't know how much longer it can last beyond this playoff run, but um that dude is amazing. Yeah, what we know is Giannis is going to keep coming. There's no question about yeah. that, right? So he is going to try to turn this into a war of attrition. He's basically saying, all right, little Lilliputians, I'm going to be stomping for as many games as we're still in this, right? And you're going to have to hold up to that. And we've seen in other situations where, you know, physical guys can just, you know, wear down and, and emerge from a series like Embiid versus uh, the Nets, right? I mean, that was yep. that was a, a great case of that. But of course, you know, Shaq wearing people down in the past and so forth. So Giannis is going to keep coming. Now, he is going to have to make smarter decisions. There's no question because uh, once he's got three guys around him in the paint and he's got no clear passing lanes, it's already too late, right? He can't be getting himself into those situations. Uh, And they did a great job of disguising where they're helping from, who's going to be the guy coming down so that he can't make just that simple read. Giannis is a good playmaker. He's not a great playmaker. And when we were talking before this series, I actually told you, I thought you underrated a little bit how uh, well he could create high quality shots for his teammates but I think in reality if you underrated that I underrated how well Boston's defense was going to be able to uh, take away the easy passes right or the Mm -hmm. even the marginal passes and in a lot of situations his reads were really tough like you know he's got guys flying from directions he's not expecting and by the time those passes get out to his shooters uh, those are contested and not the best shots because they're able to kind of rotate, uh, you know, and and get to where they need to be from a, a contesting standpoint. So I was really impressed by Boston's defensive effort. I'm sure that's clear by now. Um, from Milwaukee's standpoint, they just looked uh, overwhelmed by the moment. We talked about that being a possibility after that Detroit series. I mean, that played out exactly uh, on cue. There's still a long way to go in this series, but I think that the tricky part for them is that they're already at the must-win stage, right? Like, if they're going yep. down 0-2, forget about it. And, uh, you know, that's why 
the adjustments have to come quickly. Like Bud's got to find a, a way to free up Giannis, get him so that he's not going against that set five-man defensive look that he was just trying to kind of barrel into over and over uh, You know, during that series. I don't know if that means you move him off the ball a little bit more, like do more pick and roll so he gets it on the move so he's not just sort of you know predictable line driving like straight into the the heart of their defense uh, or what else you can do but they've they've got to get more creative and they have no time to do it you know it's it's make or break in game two yeah and and bud is probably going to take a lot of heat from the bucks internet and a lot of it is deserved a lot of my concerns coming into this series at least looked well founded after game one um because of the lack of adjustments and you know they they had to know what boston was going to try to do in that game and yet they didn't really change anything that they were going to do, um, which is concerning. But I also think it's important to emphasize the lack of alternatives on that roster. And to that point, Jonathan says, the Bucks may have the best player on the floor in this series, but the Celtics have the next five or six best players. Or do my no, eyes deceive come me? Come on, come on. No, no, come no. On. Here's, the, here's the deal. Here's That's the just take. dead okay. wrong. I understand that you want to put Middleton somewhere in the middle of that pack. But I think Jonathan's point is well taken that the Celtics have a lot more talent after you look at the top of the rosters. And the well, Bucks look, problem your, your point your point can be well taken and also completely wrong. I mean he's not right. That's just a <laughs> well, completely I wouldn't say completely. Framing. I would say technically wrong because technically you forgot that Chris Middleton exists. But I wouldn't say completely wrong because oh, you're what you're to alluding like, to is dead on and is the problem with the series. Okay, semi Ojale and Daniel Tice are better than Chris Middleton according to this guy's <laughs> ranking. I mean, come on. Okay. Be, okay. Be reasonable. Fair, fair, fair point. But Eric Bledsoe did not show up in game one. And some of the other Bucks guys were fake good shooters, as I predicted. And they're just all going to need to be better than that. And, um, and when you think about adjustments that Bud can make, I think he's really got to consider benching Brooke Lopez and bringing him off, uh, off the bench and, and only playing him when Horford is sitting. In part because like the Bucks are going to have a real challenge in this series if they're starting every first quarter and every third quarter conceding six to eight points with these lineups. And I hesitate to make this comparison because Bud is a phenomenal coach and Randy Whitman was the shittiest coach I've ever seen. But, um, you know, a lot of my worldview on basketball, for better or worse, is shaped by like some of the toxic Wizards teams I've grown up with over the years. And, um, you know, the Wizards had one lineup they refused to deviate from um, at the height of the wall era where they would start Gortat and Nene at the same time. And in a Hawks series in like, I think it was 2014, they just would get blown off the floor with that lineup at the beginning of every first quarter and every third quarter. And it ended up costing them the series. And a similar thing could happen in this Celtics matchup for Milwaukee where it's like, this isn't going to work. And you could just put Giannis at the five, slide Miritich to the four, and and say to Giannis, like, look, you have to go beat Al Horford. That's the way we're going to win this series. And I think part of the brilliance of Giannis is that everyone can see his game and say, all right, once you play small ball five, you're going to be an absolute nightmare for teams. And he may not be there yet. He may struggle with some of Horford's defense. But, like, at this point... The alternative is probably a losing proposition for the Bucks, so why not roll the dice and and put it on Giannis and ask him to go be incredible? By the way, he only played I think 35 minutes in Game One, and like 
all year long we were talking, all right, once they get to the playoffs, he's going to be at 40, 42 minutes and just dominate teams. Like that should yeah. start as well. That's well, another adjustment. No, I, I'm with you on that, but it didn't matter necessarily in game one. He could have played 60 minutes in game one. He wasn't going to be true. getting them what, what they needed. But I agree, like that's the number one adjustment is like, Giannis, you're playing 47 minutes and we're going to figure out the rest of the rotation around you. Um, Lopez was not good in game one, but I don't think he was their weakest link. To me, their weakest link was that other guard spot. Uh, you know, Sterling Brown and then Connaughton both gave them like less than nothing. I mean, it was really, yeah. really rough from those guys. And so... Uh, you know, those guys, first of all, they definitely have to hit shots. Uh, second of all, it's concerning, and it's partly because of the Brogdon injury, that they're relying upon those right. two guys. But they really are. Like, the playoffs are here. They don't have Brogdon. So those guys are going to have to give them something. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe and it's hard, too, because Brogdon was a really valuable cog for them, and it's it's just kind of incredible when you take him out of that top unit then suddenly the whole team looks thinner than they did a month ago or six weeks ago. And so it's kind of unfair to to say that, like, I think there were people I saw saying that, like, Milwaukee were overrated all year long. That's that's not something I agree with whatsoever. Number one, because Brogdon's not in there. And number two, because, like, the Celtics are a finals-caliber team that they're dealing with. And so if the Bucks lose this series— it won't be because they were frauds all year. It's just because Boston has been really good and was really good in game one. That said, I, I think it's going to go seven still. I mean, I think it's going to be kind of a war going forward. And um, so I'm not even going to be on here tooting my own horn too loudly because it's going to be a mess over the next uh, 10 days to two weeks. Yeah, so one option would be you expand George Hill's role maybe if he's the best of your bad options, you know, and you just play him more mm -hmm. like something like starters minutes. Um, I mean, the other lesson that if they do lose this series is going to be the value of, of three-point shooting from your lead ball handler, right? Like the guy who has the ball at all times. Uh, Giannis has learned that lesson before in the past in the playoffs at times of his career where he just had nothing whatsoever from outside. Uh, he was able to hit a couple of three-pointers. That was one adjustment that he made in the game, like going to his own three-point shot as a way to kind of create spacing and avoid uh, you know, some of the minefields that he was running into with Boston's defense. But if they lose this series, that's going to have been the fundamental issue. It, right now, this whole series comes down to Giannis versus the Giannis rules defense that Boston is playing. And uh, that doesn't make him a fraud. That doesn't make Milwaukee a fraud. But it does say, look, if you're uh, main guy is going to have the ball in his hands as often as Giannis has it, he has to be able to shoot, you know, at least at a passable rate. He has to be able to create space by his presence on the perimeter uh, if you want to win playoff games. That's not a brand new lesson. That's something that we keep learning year after year after year. And as physically imposing as Giannis is, as incredible of a basketball story as, as he is, as much as we like to hype him up, he is not exempt from that reality of basketball. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we'll see what the Bucks come up with. Let's keep it moving, Ben. We have one more message from our sponsors. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. 
Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Let's get back into it. Ten minutes on Raptors Sixers. We begin with Rajko, who says, Man, I'm so glad you're in Toronto, Sharp. Too bad it's cold. Let me tell you, Ben, <laughs> I came up here. It is still 40 degrees in Toronto. I don't know how that's possible. Hey, in part whining. because... <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it snowing in Milwaukee right now? It is snowing in Milwaukee, but look, when we were here for the for the All Star game, it was the first time you and I had ever met in person. You remember, I'm sure, it was like zero degrees Fahrenheit in Toronto that entire weekend, and everyone I met, whether and everyone I've talked to since, even whether it's fans, whether it's writers, whether it's people with the NBA, they all say, "Oh, like Toronto's never like that." I mean, it's basically like East Coast weather. It's really not as cold as people say. Meanwhile, it's the end of April, and I'm looking at Toronto, and I'm like, it's 75 degrees in D.C. There's no way it's going to be cold in Toronto. I did not look at the weather report, which was very, very stupid. And so I get up here. I don't have any jacket whatsoever. It's been 40 degrees the entire time I've been here. Having said that, awesome city. I'm meeting some people who are fans of the podcast, Uh, great food. I actually really like Toronto, but... I am pissed yeah. off about the Look, cold, and all of all of you people were lying to me when you said so, that All Star Weekend yeah. was an outlier. Couple things happening there. First of all, you got to control what you can control. Get a jacket, okay? <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to get one of those fancy like nine hundred dollar Canadian goose jackets that everybody wears up there that are basically like one bedroom apartments that they're so big and spacious. You don't have to get one of those, right? But yeah. get yourself a jacket. Number two, uh, look, I had to. I had to go purchase one yesterday, and I, I resent having to go do that. But you know, con- continue. No, okay, good. Congratulations. You can stop complaining about that. Number two, though, they're lying through their teeth about the weather, just like Harden was lying through his teeth about not knowing he was 0 for 15 in that game against uh, <laughs> the Utah Jazz, okay? It's a very touchy subject for them. It's a soft spot. They're very defensive, and they're going to go to their graves pretending that it's always 72 and sunny, even though nobody in that city has a tan ever. So yeah, I'm sure it's nice for about six weeks, you know, August, early September. I'm sure it's beautiful. Um, well, but, it is. You know, it, when, it when Drake 50. gets up there for summer jam, you know, he picks like the one weekend <laughs> where the snowfall has like receded enough so he can actually get on stage. You know, I understand. I respect the hustle. But remember, Drake lives in Calabasas for a reason, Andrew. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. It hit 50 degrees on Sunday afternoon. I had a really nice walk along Lake Ontario. Uh, so I enjoyed that. But Wait, like I was on the really ice looking forward. Or, or... <laughs> no, no, no ice, no ice. But I was, <laughs> I was expecting Toronto in the spring. I don't know. I've heard great things, and uh, it has yet to deliver. But um, let's talk Kawhi for a second. Lewis says, let's do a thought experiment. Say Kawhi and the Termites win the finals this year, and Kawhi still bolts. Is there any precedent for a superstar showing up, winning the title, and leaving all in the same season how would he be remembered in Toronto? Bonus take for you, the Raptors are sweeping the 76ers. Uh, and he said that before game one, actually. So credit to Lewis. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts there, Ben? I, I don't think there's any historical precedent unless we want to go back to some random outlier in the mid-70s. But what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, the the one-year thing is what's so rare about it, right? Because, like, you might be able to, like, make some key move, like that Celtics team, like, goes and gets Garnett, and then they win the title the first year, and it's like, oh, my God, they just changed the whole landscape of the league, right? But then mm-hmm. Garnett didn't leave the next year. <laughs> That's the exactly. weird part about it. Um, so, no, I don't really have a good uh, good example of that. Maybe we should open that one up to the uh, the open floor globe. They can, you know, send in uh, the closest comparisons. But remember, yes. I mean, Do Kawhi is a— Do research for us, please. Well, but also Kawhi is like a really, really high-level player, right? I mean, we're talking about a guy who should be, if he showed up every night, a top-five guy in the league um, yep. at the at the peak of his powers. So those guys don't actually change teams that often, and certainly not changing teams, you know, twice in one year. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty uh, unusual. Now, in terms of that series, though, are they winning every matchup battle? I mean, is that what happened in Game One? Like, it seemed like their answers for Joel Embiid were so much better than the Sixers' answers for Kawhi. That I'm mm-hmm. not ready to go like and say sweep, sweep, sweep. But if I was Brett Brown, I'm not sure how well I was sleeping after game one. Well, and Brett Brown has a similar problem to Bud in Milwaukee, where like you could say he needs to make adjustments, but there are limited options on that Sixers team. Like, I don't know what you're gonna do. What, play Jen- James Ennis 40 minutes a game, play Furkan Korkmaz 30 minutes a game? Like Mike Scott is hurt, he's in a walking boot, he may not play in this series at all. And I don't know where that leaves Philadelphia because you well, look got up and bigger, down. They got bigger problems than Mike Scott. I mean, I'm just saying. Well, like. exactly, exactly. And you know what the real problem is? And it's I feel bad because I don't have a problem with Jimmy Butler. I don't have a problem with Tobias Harris. But this series is exposing the limits of the wings that they went all in for. And it's like if these are the guys who are supposed to take you to the promised land, then you're screwed. Because neither one of them, Jimmy on Kawhi is hard to watch. Like he's just not only a step slow, he's two or three steps slow and is just getting abused defensively. And it's going to be all on Ben Simmons to, to at least come up with some sort of solution for Kawhi. Maybe, maybe he can. He did okay in the second half against Toronto in game one. But like Jimmy is lost in that matchup and he was not delivering on the other end either. And, um, and Tobias is, is, less of a story because he I don't think anybody expected that much from him anyways but like he's got to be better if the Sixers are going to have this have a chance in this series because ultimately Philly's big problem is that both Embiid and Simmons are going to be half as effective in this matchup because of the personnel that Toronto has and so I don't know I mean coming into this series there were a lot of smart people saying Raptors in five and I think Part of me held out hope that we were going to get to see some chaos and see this turn into a war that goes six or seven games. But after watching the way Toronto is able to just kind of like pick this team apart and, and the complete lack of answers for both Kawhi and Siakam on the wing, like I, I don't know what Philly's going to be able to do. Like we'll see what happens in Game Two Monday night, um, but it's it's not looking great. And this is again like you win in the playoffs with killer wings who can play both sides of the ball. And the Sixers traded for two guys, both of whom are coming up short in this series, and that leaves them with pretty pretty limited options. I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think Jimmy can play better, and I think you know Tobias can probably have a bigger impact than he had in Game One. But the, I agree with your basic reasoning: is like those matchups are working against them, and it looks like I mean, if Kawhi is just going to keep being this guy, they're not going to have an answer for him. And they were already kind of pointing fingers after Game One: should we be doubling more? Who should guard him on more possessions? And you know, Ben Simmons is out there saying, "Hey, I did a great job," and it's just like, "All right, <laughs> I mean, you just gave up." <laughs> he did an okay job. He didn't get like blown off the floor the way everyone else did. I, I know, but we saw what. A good job looks like clay thompson on, yeah. on james harden right like that come exactly. on like let's let's be a little bit realistic it would have been funnier for philadelphia to lose in the first round to brooklyn it would have been more of a disaster and tire fire and everybody would have you know gone crazy if that had happened but mm-hmm. i actually think losing to the raptors if they keep losing in this specific manner will actually be more painful because you'll have to sit back and look at your gm elton brand versus Masai Ujiri and say Masai Ujiri traded a playoff zero in DeMar DeRozan for two players, Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, who have both been probably better than the guys that Elton Brand acquired in Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris. And and Elton Brand had to give up 50 million picks, three rotation players to get those two guys, right? (laughs) And so then you have to sit there if you're a Sixers fan looking forward and saying, we know what the gold standard for front office executives looks like you know it's Masai Ujiri it's Danny Ainge uh you know it's Bob Myers and we've got Elton Brand we've got a guy who was able to do this and this is exactly what uh, the greener grass looks like on the other side and to me that's actually more painful than somehow losing to those horrible Nets team would have been in the first round yes and it's not only that that's painful I would also add that you're going to be leaving this series as a Sixers fan if they do end up losing and saying, okay, so now our options are overpay Run it back. Harris or <laughs> Run overpay it back. Jimmy Butler, these two wigs who just gave us nothing in this matchup. And we just saw exactly how far away we are from the top of the East. Uh, but speaking of free agency, the most well, interesting part of all well, this, I think, is the Kawhi, is the Kawhi element. Because okay, before we, we get to, to that, people, though, Real quick, okay. can we call Elton Brand? Can we call him Billy Young King, or is it too early for that? <laughs> it's too early. It's too early, and I'm not going to do that to Elton Brand because, again, I don't know how much he was behind some of these moves. Uh, I I have to ask more questions of the people in and around Philadelphia before uh, you're always I always giving Elton Brand. <laughs> I swear, you're, you're, you just hand out passes. Like You're the nice teacher in the high school. Everybody can just go yeah, to the, the hallway whenever they want, giving them hall it's, passes left and right. It's not just that. I also think that the Sixers ownership is dumber than anyone realizes and deserves more blame than they've gotten over the last five years. So that's that's where my sympathy for Elton Brand uh, originates. But as far as the Kawhi thing, I do find it fascinating that almost everyone I talk to in Toronto, whether it's beat writers, a couple fans, like everybody kind of talks like, it's a foregone conclusion that he's coming back, and they, they mention his connection with the medical staff and how much he likes it here, how great Siakam is, how great this team is set up for the future. Yeah, he's like fluent and, in French now, right? Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> Did, man. Didn't he sign up for the Canadian Mounties, or is he shoveling snow on his off days? I mean, it sounds like he's really di- dived in that community up there, huh? Yeah, well, people are drinking the Kool-Aid, and we will see. I, I will say... Two things. One, I'm blown away by how good Kawhi is. And when you talk about what he did in game one, like some of the shots he was hitting, I think a lot of people would say, oh, like, that's not sustainable. He's not going to keep hitting those shots. 
What makes Kawhi great is that none of those shots were particularly difficult for him. He's able to create space with his body and rise up and just get whatever he wants in the half-court offense. And that is, that's something that maybe kind of differentiates him even from Durant, because Durant is still taking a lot of tough shots. Kawhi is able to get himself easy shots, and that's what makes him great. So he's going to well, be really, really tough to deal with in whatever matchup Toronto ends up in, whether it's the conference finals or the finals. What do you think? I just don't think that he's facing as intelligent of a defensive scheme as what Durant's faced. I mean, I think that the Clippers had uh, a lot of really smart things going on. Doc Rivers prepared for that series brilliantly. What he did with Steph Curry and what he was trying to do with Durant, I thought was smart. And I think also Houston, um, they've played on this high level before. They're locked in trying to play like championship caliber defense, and they don't have a great individual matchup for Durant but they're mm-hmm. bringing everything that they've got. I did not see that level of intensity from Philadelphia, not even really that close, right? Yeah. And I thought it was very telling, though, that you know they wanted to crown uh, Kawhi as the best player in basketball after game one. Like He's the best player in basketball if we're talking about Canada only. You know what I mean? And so it's still that same tendency uh, for the, you know, the Raptors fan base to want to just you know be myopic and say, oh, DeMar DeRozan, he's his top five player in the league, MVP candidate. Like they still go to that overrating tendency, and he played phenomenal. But uh, to me, Durant is clearly better than him at this point. Um, but I do think that Kawhi has reminded us of the guy who we forgot about when he decided to sit out all of last year. And don't think I've forgotten about that, Kawhi. I'm still watching, and we demand this from you every <laughs> single postseason, not just when you feel like it. Well, and credit to him, though. He's made all of the... <sighs> All of the load management is worth it now, and um, I, I don't want to absolve him. I, I, don't, I don't personally, um, I don't have a huge problem with some of the rest. It was kind of annoying, but he, he's delivering when it matters, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I do think the difference with Durant, I, I guess a better way to construe it would be that Durant is probably the best, most unstoppable shot maker in the NBA, Whereas Kawhi's brilliance is rooted in his ability to get square and get clean looks, basically whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And um, yeah, I don't know, I just, man. If they're if you're trapping him at a high level, like he's not going to be getting those same shots. You know, that's the yeah. thing. Like I, and I that's, just don't and feel that's what like the Sixers are going to have to do. They're yeah, going to have to like, trap him and get the ball out of his hands. There was such a lack of sophistication and just energy and effort from the Sixers in Game One that uh, I definitely see what you're saying. Like, look, he can walk into that 15 foot mid range or barrel past a Tobias Harris with no problem. That's not that impressive. Like, you got to do better, Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, fair enough. You really, you really got to do better. But no, he's been, like I said, he's been the second best player in the playoffs. I think he's outplayed Giannis. Um, yep. I think he's outplayed Harden. Uh, and you know, there's been some you know moments where he hasn't looked as good, but when when his ceiling has been very very high, and it's because of the same things that we talked about earlier with other guys, the adaptability to find soft spots in a defense, which maybe Harden hasn't shown, and then a very reliable knockdown jumper that Giannis just doesn't have, and mm-hmm. those are advantages that matter a lot right now, and he's exploiting those advantages to the fullest. All right. Well, on that note, um, we will come back. We'll talk more about Kawhi and the Raptors because I have additional thoughts. But you have to head to the airport. I have to head out into the 40-degree streets of Toronto. The tundra. So, Ben, <laughs> yeah, let's come back uh, on Friday and, uh, and finish this up. We've got some trade ideas for the Sixers. A lot to get to.
Sounds great, Andrew. Open Floor Globe, you guys can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. It really helps us spread the word. We're also on the world-famous radio.com slash open floor. Andrew, all emails can come to the address at openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com we got a lot of great ones over the weekend I love the passion from the Warriors fans the Rockets fans and everybody else so please keep those coming check me out on Instagram at ben.goliver just help me get my follower count up it's a shameless plug All right, Andrew (laughs) until later this week I'll talk to you alright man take it easy